All right, we're going to get into our study this morning in the book of Galatians. If you've brought your Bible, or if you brought a smartphone with a Bible app, you're going to want to open up to Galatians chapter 2. past few weeks, actually four weeks, a month in total, we've been talking through, or around, I should say, the gospel. In fact, we entitled our series Gospel Definition, like high definition. The idea is that the greater you understand the gospel, the more clarity you have on what God has done in Jesus, the more clarity you have on everything else around you. C.S. Lewis makes a comparison to God's existence, where he says that God is like the sun, and I know he's there not just because I can see the sun, but through the sun I see everything. And for us as Christians, it's the same way. The gospel shines a light, impacts, spreads through all of our life. And so we've talked about uh, the authority of the gospel as God's gospel. We've talked about the importance of understanding the right gospel. We've talked about how the gospel brings and breeds unity in the church. We've talked about how the gospel leads to demanding of us our very lives, our all, everything. But we haven't really sat in the question, what is the gospel? And that's where this all culminates and climaxes in chapter 2, with an articulation of what it is that makes the good news, that's what the word gospel means, what it is that makes the good news good. Now, just to get you up to speed, remember that what's happening here is Paul has just confronted Peter, another apostle, because he's changed his practice. Whereas he used to eat with Gentiles in the church at Antioch, just sitting at the table with them, having a meal, going into their households, having them, you know, all mingle together because they were all Christians. Because of these new representatives from the church in Jerusalem, he started to dial that back. He started to walk, as the Jews always did, in separation from Gentiles, not sharing a table, not entering into one another's homes, acting as if there's a division between Jew and Gentile. And so Paul publicly opposes Peter calls him out on his behavior, which he says is not in line with the gospel. That his actions deny the gospel, the good news, that he proclaims and believes. Where we get to today in verse 15 is him unpacking that charge. Okay? In fact, it's one of these things, depending on how your Bible is paragraphed and how you go about your reading habits, you may open this up and just think that it's part of one of Paul's letters, just an explanation of something, but Paul is still recording his conversation that happened publicly with Peter, okay? And so with that, let's pick up in verse 14, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith, in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by our faith in Christ and not of works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father Paul records here that the life he now lives today in the present tense, every day, he lives by faith in the Son of God. That means that the good news is not just good news from our past, it is good news for our present and for our future. He also, in this text, makes a connection between the gospel itself and every facet, every aspect of our life, he sees the gospel as a means to holiness, to righteousness, to love, to truth, to the very knowledge of God and a relationship with him. And so I pray this morning that you would help us to understand what makes the good news so good. And that that reality, that epiphany, that aha moment would ring in our hearts so often that we would be transformed, that we would be changed, that we would be made new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as we get into this passage, two things you should be aware of. One, this passage is pivotal for the rest of the book of Galatians which means the themes that are drawn out here in this conversation with Peter, Paul then harvests and utilizes for the rest of the book to make his point, which is good, because what we're going to get into this morning is dense and involved, and if we trace every rabbit trail, we would need the next few months to do so. Okay. The second thing that I want you to understand about this passage is that it is a centerpiece of controversy for understanding Paul, the New Testament, and Christianity as a whole. Okay? This is a big one. You could walk into seven different churches and hear seven very different sermons on this passage, and it has to do with what it all means and how it all fits together. And so for the most part today, because we have more time to go deeper, and because there's more work to be done, I want to focus on the most basic and undeniable of truths of this passage. Not just like a lowest common denominator, like let's just reduce it to what's not controversial so we can all get along, or let's just liquefy it down to a place where it's still good but not so concentrated, but I want to focus on the undeniable reality of what makes the good news good. Now, look at verse 15, just to get us started. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Presumably, most of us this morning are not Jews by birth. So what does Paul call us here? Gentile sinners. It seems like a strange place to begin, doesn't it? It seems like Paul's whole point is to say, hey, would you back off the non-Jewish people in the church who Jesus has welcomed and received? So why does he start here? He starts here because he enters into the logic of the other side. He starts here because he's going to make a counterpoint in just a second, but he gives them their first point. He says, all right, let me grant, if you will. He says, let me agree with you that we are Jews, the very people of God, the descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel. We are the people of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, the recipient of God's presence and God's law. He says, fine, that is who we are. And because of that, we are not them, the Gentile sinners. Okay? Now, this word, Gentile sinners, is not saying that Gentiles are worse people, just that they're outside the covenant. The only reason Israel is righteous is because God has made a way for them to be righteous. Okay, and so although there were those in those times who extended this to being generalizations 
stereotypes, criticisms of foreigners, right? If Paul was a Roman, you can imagine him saying, look, we all know that we're civilized Romans and not barbarians, right? It's a similar point. But he says this, and then notice the first word of verse 16. Yet, however, but, right? He says, all right, granted, we are the Jews. Yet, what does he say? We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, see that little pronoun there, we? Paul isn't saying, yes, we are Jews, but let me tell you what I think. He's saying, okay, fine, we're Jews, but you know as well as I do, right? Do you see the difference there? In the same way that he agrees with the, saying, the first point, he demands that they agree with the second point. Peter was not saved by the works of the law. Those who came from James were not saved by the works of the law. Those Jews who became Christians in Antioch were not saved by the works of the law. Instead, as it says here, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, now, let me just stitch a few things forward of where Paul's going. His concern for the Galatians is not that the Jews have come in and avoided eating with them. That's a thing that happened. It's important to Paul because it makes a point. His concern is that following in the wake of that has come these troublers who have said, all right, all right, all right. Yes, you've accepted Jesus, but now that you're part of the people of God, that means circumcision. That means kosher laws. That means keeping the works of the law following the commands of Moses. As we'll see, even starting next week, that's where Paul is going. Okay. But notice his logic here. He says, if the works of the law weren't sufficient for Jews to be saved, then how can they be necessary for Gentiles? If keeping the covenant of Moses did not move the Jews into the position of being God's saved people, then why would God's saved people, the Gentiles, need to move back into the law? If the value of the law wasn't sufficient to make the Jews justified, then why would the justified needed at all. Okay. These are the things that he's asking. These are the things that he's suggesting. In other words, the law, as we will see in Galatians, leads to Jesus. Jesus is the climax, the culmination, it, the fulfillment of its promises, its very literal embodiment, the keeper of the law. As Martin Luther loves to say, Jesus didn't come as a second Moses, as a second law giver, but as the first law keeper. Okay. And so he says, Peter, how is it that you stand before God as righteous? How is it that you have been approved before God and now enjoy this relationship with him? How is it that you've made holy and therefore a recipient of God's very spirit? How is it that you anticipate at the end of all time to stand before the judgment seat of God and be declared righteous. And Peter has to confess, well, it's because of faith in Christ. Okay. So notice what he says here again in verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, that last sentence there, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul there is alluding to, almost quoting, Psalm 143. When he says because in that last sentence, he gives us his reason. Because the Bible says so. And not just the Bible like the New Testament, the Old Testament, the covenant. Psalm 143 says, before you, God, no person will be justified right after asking for mercy. Okay. In other words, the Jews knew that the law couldn't justify. 
The Jews, the Jews knew that the law was never meant to justify. He's reminding them of this because their behavior denies it. Okay. Let me just put one more lens on it. Why the kosher laws? Why the clean and unclean? Why the ritual washings? Why the book of Leviticus? One of the most distinctive reasons, if you go back and read it, was to keep Israel separate from the nations. To keep them distinct. To keep them apart. But now God has done something in Jesus Christ that has declared the unclean things clean, as Mark tells us in his gospel. As Peter had that vision of the curtain descending from heaven, or a tablecloth instead of a curtain, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Do not call unclean what I have cleansed. In other words, the Old Testament law, with all of its rituals, was a holding pattern. It provided a way for Israel to have a first taste of what God was going to do in salvation, and it was a complicated way. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, that preemptive metered out in, you know, small amounts, very rigid, that all fell away. Because now we have the total rollout of what God was going to do. Now, there's a second issue that needs to be uh, dealt with here, and we find that in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ a servant of sin? Here's what Paul is asking He's recognizing that the other side is saying, wait a minute. So you're saying that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and because he's the Jewish Messiah and has saved us so much, we now no longer have to keep the law of Moses. Doesn't that mean that Jesus is just a permissive, you can ignore that stuff now? Doesn't it lead Israel away from God and not to him? In other words, are you saying, Paul, that because Jesus comes and provides everything we need for salvation, that we no longer need to live holy lives? That we no longer need to follow righteousness? Aren't you just saying that God's so gracious that we can do whatever the hell we want? That's the question that lies behind this idea. Paul deals with it in the book of Romans as well. If salvation is by grace then why not sin more so that grace can abound more? Now, he's going to deal with this very strongly in the book of Galatians, but right here, he challenges it on a different point. And let me put a different lens on it. The Old Testament covenant said, be separate from the Gentiles. Paul is making a case that in the church, that separation cannot exist. And he says, are we found to be sinners? Doesn't that make Jesus a minister of sin? Doesn't he lead away from God and not unto God? Doesn't he lead into law-breaking instead of righteousness? And notice how he responds here. He says, certainly not. And then he says this, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, what in the world does that mean? Paul's point here is one of two things. Either he's saying, if you put yourself back under the law, if you rebuild the law and its responsibilities, then yeah, you're condemned. He's going to make a point in a second that he, Paul, is dead to the law. He's no longer under its demands. He's no longer subject to its charges. And so he says, yeah, if you put it back in place. Okay, imagine, imagine you have a speech impediment. Or maybe you have bad posture. And so you get one of those machines that buzzes, right? That buzzes and says, oh, straighten your back. Or you get some sort of laser gatekeeper that beeps every time your tongue goes out of your mouth, okay? That's how the law functioned. It told Israel when they were out of line or out of alignment. But Paul says, but we have something completely new going on here. Not just, you know, a new straight spine, not just a tongue that behaves, 
but a completely different thing, and that metric no longer applies. It's the wrong tool for the job. And so yeah, if you turn it back on, it's gonna beep and drive you crazy, just like your car alarm that's overly sensitive. But it doesn't mean there's thieves around. It means the alarm is no longer applicable. Okay, that's his idea maybe here. If you put it back in place, if you turn the alarm system back on, yeah, it's gonna go off, but it's not relevant anymore. Or there's another possibility. When Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, just after this one, talks about these things, this is what he says God does in Jesus Christ. That in Jesus Christ, he tore down the wall of hostility that divided Jew and Gentile. Made them one in Jesus Christ, and therefore made peace. It may be here that he's saying, if you build up the wall that God has torn down, then who's the one who's moving away from God and not towards him? If God says, yeah, this is needs to be demolished and removes it, and you say, no, actually, I like that wall, I'm going to put it back. Is that obedience? Is that faith? Is that following God? Or is it, as he says, does it make you a transgressor? I don't know which is the best way to read this verse, but the punchline for both of them is the same. It's that the danger in each place is that they would deny what makes the good news good. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read about these things, I go, what does this have to do with me? To be honest, I've never been tempted to go kosher. To be honest, I've never had someone come up to me and say, because you are a Gentile sinner, you need to keep the law of Moses. In fact, remember right now, he's talking to Peter. He's going to talk to Gentiles, but he's talking to Peter, and he's going, Peter, don't go backwards. Don't step back under the law. You are dead to the law, he's going to say. And you say, but am I dead to the law? I was never alive to the law. Here's the thing. There is something in the book of Galatians that all of us who don't have Jewish roots have had to die to. And Paul just labels it the world. Let me show you in uh, Galatians chapter 4. Okay. Now he does two things here. He addresses two audiences. The first one is the Jews, and it'll be really easy to recognize. And then he addresses the Gentiles. And I just want you to notice as I read what's the same and what's different. So look at verse 3. In the same way, we also, we as in the Jews, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, as a Jew, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, so the Jews, Jesus comes and brings them out under the law by entering under the law and then bringing about adoption. Now notice when he talks to the Gentiles in verse 8. Formerly when you, see the different pronoun there? We, the Jews, you, the Gentiles, formerly when you did not know God, were enslaved to those that were by nature not gods, but now you have come to know God. Or rather to be known, God, known to God, how can you again turn to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So, Jews died to the law. We died to the world. One more time, chapter 6. Look at what he says in verse 14. Paul says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Okay. World, crucifixion, new creation. Law, crucifixion, new creation. The pattern is the same. 
here's what had happened with the law in the Jewish mind. It had become a metric of worth. Okay, now if you read theologians like N.T. Wright, I'm being very careful in my language here. I'm not saying that, that Jews believed that if they just did everything in the Old Testament that God would save them. Read Deuteronomy chapter 6. God saved them first by grace. The law was how you responded, how you leaned into that, how you lived it out. But for many Jews, it also became a demonstration of their worthiness of being saved. In other words, Paul's primary concern here is that the law is being used as a badge of worth, as an estimate of value. And so now when people look at non-Jewish people and that lens is still there, you know, that appraisal system is still there, they go, Gentile sinner. And he wants to say, no, Christian. Okay. In the same way, if they say Gentile sinner, what do they say about themselves? Righteous Jew. Worthy of God's salvation. You, however, are not yet worthy, so you need to come under the law to make yourself worthy. Okay. This is where the world comes in. Maybe you've never read the Old Testament. You still have man-made assessments of worth that run your life. What does success look like? What does goodness look like? What does value look like? What makes you popular? What makes you uh, respectable? Okay, and these systems can be all sorts of things. They can even be contradictory. But if we carried any of them into Christianity, we don't understand the gospel. If you make a distinction between yourself as wealthy and therefore worthy, or white and therefore worthy, or woke and therefore worthy, it doesn't really matter what the metric is. If you carry it in and you say, this is what makes me worth saving, Paul says you've missed something very significant. Okay. The challenge here, the challenge for all of us, is are you going to find your identity in these markers that the world or the Old Testament law tells you are markers of worth and value, demonstrations of righteousness, evidences of your goodness or your acceptableness before other people and before God? Or are you going to find your identity in what he calls faith in Christ? Now clearly, Paul's going to talk a lot about identity in Galatians, and he doesn't just say you should just trample it, throw it out, it doesn't matter anymore. The gospel clearly doesn't eradicate cultural differences. It doesn't eradicate differences between the genders. It doesn't eradicate differences in class or status, but it does transcend and transform them. In other words, what is the core of your identity? If someone were to ask you for your memoir, who are you? Paul says, if you say, I am one of God's people, the Jews, or if you say, I am a successful businessman, or if you say, I am a faithful spouse, or an honorable mother, or a, um, you know, a diligent servant of society as the mayor of the city, or whatever it is, if that's your first answer, then you don't understand what makes the good news good. Okay. That is all foundation so that we can get to verse 19. He says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now this is something we're going to talk about in weeks to come. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But I do want you to notice that first phrase. How was it that Paul died to the law? Through the law. What he's going to show in the next chapter, what we'll start talking about next week, is that the Old Testament itself leads to Jesus. That he didn't come to this from abandoning the Old Testament, but from believing it. Why is it that he's died to the law? Because the law told him to. Okay. So he says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live unto God. Okay. And then we get the gospel in verse 20. Let's read it together. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ 
who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were, were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Okay, I want to start at the end and work backwards. Paul says here that the way that Peter is behaving, Paul says here that the demands that the troublers are putting on the Gentiles in Galatia is nothing less here than a nullification of God's grace. Either your identity is established or it is given. That's what he's saying. Either you create these divisions of merit because you're worthy or you have received a gift. And the two cannot mix. They're like oil and water. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God because if I go back to the law, then why did Christ die? If the law was essential and enough and sufficient, then why need Jesus come? But Jesus did come. And Peter, you know not just that Jesus came, but you know that you need Jesus because you've put your trust and your faith in him and not in the works of the law. But that's the first thing. The good news is good news because it's grace, because it's a gift. Salvation is apart from worth. That's why righteous Jews, Gentile sinners, the gospel is for them. That's why successful people and failures, the gospel is for them. It doesn't really matter what the metric you use is. The only prequalification for the gospel, for the good news, is need. And that prequalification is universal. Now again, you may not be willing to see that. You may not be willing to admit that. But if you don't see it, if you don't admit it, you can't receive it. You can't take a gift and say, thank you for giving me what I deserve. Paul says in Romans, for the wages of sin is death. You want the paycheck for your life? There it is. But the gift of God is eternal life. Okay, so grace is the first thing. The second thing here, notice what it says at the end of verse 20 there. It says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. The good news is good because of love. Now, we say all the time, and if you're not a Christian this morning, you hear us say it all the time, Jesus loves you. And I think that's a proper and right reading of what the Bible message is. And again, do you see how that ties to worth? The good news is not that you are lovable, so God loves you. The good news is that God is love. The instigation, the core, the foundation of God's love is not in you, but in him. But notice here, he doesn't say love's present tense, does he? He says, who loved me. Past tense. When we say God loves you, it's not a platitude or an attitude. Ultimately and totally, it's a proven fact with a past tense evidence when Paul says here who loved me and we ask when Paul when did Jesus love you he loved him as he hung on a cross Paul says in Romans sometimes for a person we really admire a righteous person we might choose to die we might throw ourselves in front of the bullet. But God demonstrates, or maybe in this context, demonstrated his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before you were looking for God, Christ died for you. Whether you have interest this morning in a relationship with God or not, Christ died for you. And he did that, as it says here, out of love, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ didn't just die. He died on your behalf. He died for you. He died in your place. 
part of what makes the good news good is substitution, an exchange where someone with merit and worth, the very son of God, obedient to the law, always doing things that please the father, offering his whole life is like a burnt offering in the Old Testament, completely consecrated to the Lord. Not a moment of selfishness or self-interest, but all lived unto God and his will. And in the gospel, Jesus steps in, he's lived that life for you, and he takes all that you have done in rebellion and selfishness and against God, everything you have done to hurt another person, he takes that upon his own shoulders, and he bears the weight and the punishment for that. That's what it means when it says that Christ died for you. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, which by the way is a parallel text, those of you who are studying Second uh, Corinthians 5, excuse me, at the end of the chapter. He's going to hit all the same notes here, including this. For he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Is that a good exchange rate? Bring your worthless, bring your rejection, bring your failure. And in exchange, get goodness, righteousness, and love. That's what makes the good news good. But it's more than that. Notice what he says in verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. What did I just say? Jesus died for you. What am I saying now? You died with Jesus. And I want you to notice again the tense there. Is that something that's happening now? Something you hope to happen? Or something that did happen? I have been crucified. That's past tense. If you want to understand salvation in the New Testament, whether you're a Christian this morning or not, there are two words that define it better than any other, and here they are. In Christ. By faith, Paul says, I, in Christ, hung on that cross. By faith, Paul says, I, in Christ, was buried in that tomb. I, Paul says, by faith, in Christ, was raised from the dead. I, Paul says, by faith, in Christ, has ascended to the heavenlies. Don't believe me? Read Ephesians. What does he say? He says, in Christ, we have ascended into the heavenlies. Jesus gives us two things to do. Baptism and communion. Communion is a constant reminder that Christ loved us and died for us. Baptism is a reminder that we died with Christ. That's why we go through the practice of taking people to a body of water, bringing them beneath the surface, and then bringing them back up. Death, burial, and resurrection. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, don't you know that as many have been baptized with Christ have died with Christ? died with Christ means that this exchange was not just Jesus in your place and then a position of righteousness but also a putting to death of that in you which needs to die. There are parts of our identity and each and every one of us knows it that need to die. There are parts of our identity that bring about senses of guilt and shame. There are parts of our identity that lead us to continue to walk in ways that are unrighteous, unholy, unloving. What does Paul say here? You died with Christ. Now there's a reversal of that. There are parts of you that you're quite proud of. There are parts of you that set you above the rest. There are parts of you and metrics of worth that define before other people and in your own mind, what makes you a good person? Those have died as well. That's what he means here when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer, he says, I who live. Christianity is not just a fresh, fresh start or a do-over. It's a new life. 
in mystery of mysteries, this new life is not your own. It is the life of Christ. Now also, there's no other way to read this, right? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Who do we belong to now? If Christ lives in us, and it's no longer us who live, whose life are we living? Who calls the shots? Who makes the decisions? Why does Jesus demand that we call him Lord? Why does Paul say, let's see if I can pull this out of my memory. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, For do you not realize that you were bought with a Christ, therefore you are not your own? Do you see here how deep this gospel is? Now, that last one might make you uncomfortable. You might go, all right, I want all the other benefits. I want to set aside the other things. I want to be forgiven. I want to know God's love. I want to experience his gift, but I want autonomy. But autonomy is what begins the downward slope of the Bible story. To decide for ourselves what's right, what's beautiful, what's good, what's true. I know we focus on independence today, but God didn't create us for independence, but dependence. And that's good. It's good. Let's look at the last piece here. He says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I just want to say again, I want you all to hear it with me this morning. Through faith in Christ, you have died to who you were. But then what does he says? Verse 20 continues, In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. This is what he's going to ask the Galatians next week. He says, Having begun in the Spirit, are you now perfected in the flesh? If salvation begins in faith, is it now accomplished by works? Were you accepted in Christ Jesus and now you'll make yourself acceptable through the works of the law? The life that I live now in the flesh. Why does he say that? To be honest, I don't know. But it does stop one mistake that I think we often make. Notice he doesn't say, but the life that I now live spiritually. Have you noticed how we as a culture tend to separate our life into two sections? So there's the practical and the fleshly and the embodied. And then I'm a very spiritual person. And so spirituality is the things that happen over here. And then there's just the rest of the life. But Paul says, no, 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 the life that I live in the flesh, as I live and breathe, if you will, as I eat and as I drink, as the words come out of my mouth, as I'm in the pub just as much as I'm in the tabernacle, right? The life that I live in the flesh, all of me, holistically, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God. The Christian walk begins by faith and continues by faith, day by day. The way that we grow in Christ the way that we are sanctified, the way that we become more righteous and more holy, the way that we come to grow in our knowledge and understanding of God, the way that we become more and more what God desires to make us in Jesus Christ is the same way that it started, by faith in Christ. You know what this means? It means if you've got a place in your life where you are struggling to do the right thing, where you are finding maybe the old man has died, but he seems very loud right now in your life, that the way that you overcome that is not by some sort of managing sin, it's not by some sort of accountability structure, both of those things are fine, but by faith in Christ. Trusting what Paul just said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The way that we walk in righteousness as Christians is in dependency on Jesus to do what we cannot do. To trust that the spirit of God that was at work in Jesus Christ is also at work in us. To ask moment by moment for his help, for his power, for his transformation of his heart, our hearts. Paul puts it this way in the book of Romans. 
He says, no longer give the parts of your body as instruments of sin to do that work. Instead, reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Do the math. Remind yourself of these truths and then offer your whole self as an instrument of righteousness. Willingness, surrender, but not just that. In Christ. Faith in Christ. Now the truth is, that's really hard. Living day by day, walking by faith, not just believing that God is good and will pay your bills, but believing that God is capable of overcoming your weaknesses and your sins. That's difficult. So remember again how Paul finishes this. Who is the Son of God? The one who loved him and gave himself for him. If God loved you so much that while you were still a sinner in very rebellion against God, he died for you in Jesus Christ, how much more is he available to you now as you seek to walk with him and in his ways? And then notice again, gave himself for me. That full substitutionary gift, or as we said earlier, that we were crucified with Christ, that reality of being in Christ is readily available to you. All right, can I blow your mind for just a little bit? Will you just turn over with me to Galatians chapter 5? I want to just point out two things in tension. The first one here is in verse 5 of chapter 5. He says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Past, present, future. Eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Okay. What Jesus is going to do for us, the completion of our salvation, that's still to come. And part of what it looks like to live in this life is to live in hope. And as the author of Hebrews says, if you could see it right now, you wouldn't have to hope in it. Okay, so there is a future tense, final righteousness that will not be achieved on Monday. But, look at verse 16 of chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What is he saying? He's saying you have everything you need to follow God, to honor him, to live a life of righteousness. God has given you what you need. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Having begun in the Spirit, you will now be perfected in the Spirit. Even that word walk, what is a walk? It's step after step after step. It may be very slow. Maybe, you know, just a small step at a time. But that's what makes a journey. That's what covers all the distances. That's what bridges the gaps. And every step is the same. This is what makes the good news good. It's not just that Jesus did something for you one time. It's not just that he took the things that you had done in the past and closed the book on that and marked it forgiven. It's not just that he's removed the consequences of your sin in the eternal sense and now you don't have to suffer from hell. The good news is Jesus. The good news is we are in Christ. The good news is today God is ready and available and willing to walk with you. Now do you see what's at stake for those in the church who are going, yeah, fine, you have Jesus, but now the law of Moses. He's saying you don't need the law of Moses. You have Christ. You have Jesus himself. You have the telos, the purpose of the law, as Jesus says in uh, Matthew 5. I did not come to reject the law, but so that the law might be fulfilled. Now, I know that's a lot for us to cover today because it's literally 
the entire New Testament. What did God do in Jesus Christ? That's the Gospels. How was that message proclaimed across the world? That's the book of Acts. What does it mean for us in our daily life? That's the epistles, including Galatians. How will it all turn out? That's the book of Revelation. But they're all built upon this truth. And the truth can be very small. Simplest explanation I know of the gospel, Christ died to save sinners. But when we chew on it here, we realize that that is everything. More than we thought it was. Deeper than we realized. And most importantly, and this is Paul's point for us this morning, sufficient. Everything we need for life and godliness. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us this morning the depths of being in Christ. That when our sin nature and our temptations feel the strongest, we will remember that the old man is dead. That when we feel alone and we feel discouraged and we feel ashamed, we will remember that our identity is no longer there but is now in Christ. That when we long that God would finish what he began in us, that we would recognize that the road to righteousness, to goodness, to faithfulness, to honesty, to love is long as it rolls out ahead of us that we would place our hope in Christ. And that when we are tempted to identify what makes us worthy, what makes us valuable, that we would not build a case for ourselves, that we would not lay out a lineup and hand out medals making sure that we get the gold, but that we would find our identity as those who Christ loved and gave himself for. I pray that that identity would transcend and transform every other aspect and facet of our being, that we would be able to say, because of Jesus with Luther, that we are simultaneously saint and sinner. That we would be able to say, we are now the children of God. That we would be able to say that we no longer are under the kingdom of darkness and its ways, but have been transferred into the kingdom of light in Christ Jesus. That we would be able to say we are no longer dead, but have been made alive in Christ Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us this daily as we breathe dependency upon Christ. That the life that we now live in the flesh, when we make our plans, when we are tempted, when we are in conversation with friends, when we're about our work, that it would be filled with the life of Christ. That it would be lived by faith in the Son of God. Help us with this in Jesus' name. Amen.